there was definitely a moment there where the story basically almost got killed. So from there, from there, it was one of those um, like, let's just see how this plays out um, and, and sort of just be open to all possibilities. Two dudes to introduce you to here. Sure. Uh, I'm Peter Frickwright. I, I guess you'd call me the host of the Outside Podcast. <laughs> We've never actually had to like introduce ourselves, I guess. Uh, I'm... We don't really deal in, in formal roles. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know what I would call myself. Uh, I'm Robbie Carver. Um, so I'm Pete's left hand and Pete's my right hand or something like that. These two together are the team that makes The Outside Podcast by Outside Magazine. I don't know. I mean, we both do pretty much everything on the show, and it just happens to be like my voice that people hear more often. It sounds like the major difference between the two of you is that Robbie races bikes. Yeah, well, I go uphill faster and Pete goes downhill faster. Uh, <laughs> and and my bikes, my bikes tend to not break nearly as often as his do, so I usually end up out front. Yeah, pretty much. Back before we launched our show, I remember explicitly looking to see, hey, I wonder if Outside Magazine is making something cool that I should be listening to. And they weren't. Yet. Right around the same time that we launched, Peter and Robbie started making their show for Outside Magazine, partnering with PRX, the public radio exchange. And it was really, really good. For example, the story that they were talking about at the beginning, the one that they almost had to put on the shelf, it's part of a recurring theme they do. Stories about surviving really extreme stuff. What was the most fun part, do you think? The most fun part? Robbie's going to say that it was the sweet revenge of making me go hypothermic for the show. (laughs) Because... I had already made him go hyperthermic in a previous episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the backstory there is that for, for our piece on on hypothermia that we did uh, to launch the podcast, um, I mean, I was half naked, uh, snow piled on top of me while Pete's, you know, in in basically down jackets and snowboarding gear. <laughs> so this time uh, we realized that we had to more or less do it again. <laughs> So to pull back the curtain here, Peter and I have been texting for months, trying to figure out how and when we could trade episodes. And this is one of my favorite of theirs. So enjoy. Oh, and heads up, parents, there are some loose swear words. Nothing gratuitous, but still cussing. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. (sighs) Let's start out with Richie Kohler, a wreck diver from Massachusetts. So when you are underwater and in the shipwreck, are you, what are you feeling? I'll give you a perfect example. Each shipwreck has its own characteristic. A shipwreck like Titanic. I made two submersible dives on Titanic. At two and a half miles down, there's absolutely no light. It's pitch black. As I am going around and imaging the wreck of what is arguably the greatest shipwreck in history, 
I am aware that this is a mass grave. Around me, on the seafloor, are side-by-side men and women's shoes. And that's all that's left of the 1,500 people. Wreck diving gives you a view you don't get anywhere else. And Kohler says it's addictive. To look at a shipwreck is to look at disaster. It's destruction and tragedy, maybe death, all on permanent display. The ship is a shadow of its former self. You can almost see ghosts inside where there are still hallways and doors. Everything's recognizable. As you swim along, you could pick up a piece of crockery and you wonder to yourself, was somebody eating off of this when this accident happened? In the Titanic, these remnants are littered like tombstones. But not every shipwreck is a graveyard. If we look at other ships that are in shallow water where the sunlight reaches them and they're surrounded in life and and they become an ecosystem to themselves covered with coral, millions of fish taking up home, making it now their habitat, this is a, a remarkably different environment. Even if there had been terrible loss of life, it's masked. The ocean has covered it up. In fact, over the course of 40 years exploring shipwrecks, Richie noticed that they're a place where an old cliché becomes exaggerated. Where there's sunlight, there's life. Where it's dark, all there is is that moment of death. Even when I dive and I explore a shipwreck, I can go from one phase of that to the other. I come down the anchor line in this cobalt blue water. Below me is this, this swarm of fish that are just surrounding this this huge shipwreck and and i you know during the descent i could see a shark i could see all of these wonderful sea creatures but then i get to where i need to go and i go out of the blue and into the black i go inside the shipwreck where now everything's dead everything's still nothing grows time is stopped Today on The Science of Survival, we have a story that takes place in the dark. It's a mystery. One we're trying to raise from the deep to the shallows, so to speak. Titanic is stagnant, still, and dead. Shallower wrecks are alive. We don't own them anymore. They now belong to the ocean. And while this is a story that's never been told before... I have to pause a second. There's uh, some noise, some background noise, so you'll have to wait. In order to tell it, We're going to have to take you beneath the surface of our show. It's going to be a minute or two. Five minutes. Can you hold on a second? I'll ask these guys to hang on. Watch that. Hey, Jose, can you give me 10 minutes? Yeah. No, 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 no. Just be quiet. Just, uh, I got to finish this phone call and then I'll be right out. Thank you, sir. You back? Okay. Uh, so, on Titanic, there is this sense of... But the story doesn't actually start with Richie Kohler. It starts with my co-producer, Robbie Carver, making phone calls. Please leave your name and phone Pretending people sometimes call him Robert. We will return your call. Hi, this message is for Michael Proudfoot. Uh, my name is Robert Carver. Um, we are looking for a specific Michael Proudfoot who was scuba diving in Baja in uh, 1991 um, and had a pretty incredible... Hello? 
Hello. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not that one. Oh, you're not that one. Okay. Uh, any uh, chance? Let's start with what we know. Oh, yeah. We'd heard this story about a guy named Michael Proudfoot who had been exploring a shipwreck off the coast of Baja, Mexico, in 1991, when his regulator, or mouthpiece, broke. It's unclear exactly what happened, but one imagines him frantically searching for an exit, his body demanding air, his vision going gray. But instead of an exit, Proudfoot found an air pocket inside the ship's galley, or kitchen. He could breathe. It bought him some time. In fact, it bought him a lot of time. Because then he waited. And waited. For a full day. He waited so long he got thirsty. So he looked around and found an undisturbed tea kettle full of fresh water that he could drink. And then he waited another full day. Proudfoot was underwater for 48 hours. So he got hungry. And at some point, the story goes, he also found and ate sea urchins. And when we read this, we thought, this is one of the most incredible survival stories we've ever heard. The problem is, we can't find him. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected. Our hunt for Michael Proudfoot began with an article that told a very similar story about a man named Harrison Okine. I've been saying it, Okine. Okine. I like that. I don't know. Harrison Okine is a cook who worked on a fishing boat that sank off the coast of Nigeria. The whole ship went down, and Okine was trapped. But, like Proudfoot, he found an air pocket, and he waited for more than two days. There's a video of his rescue. It's from the helmet cam a rescue diver was wearing. This guy was on a body recovery mission. He had already found the rest of the ship's crew. But when he grabbed Okane's hand, Okane grabbed back. He's alive. He's alive. Okay, keep him there. Keep him there. We reached out to Okane, but never heard back. Eventually, I talked to some other radio producers who had gotten in touch with him, but he only does interviews for money, which is a big no-no in American journalism. His story was pretty much everywhere for a while. And a couple of those journalists had stumbled across the story of Michael Proudfoot, but no one had actually tracked him down. All these news outlets just sort of repeated the same details. Diving in a shipwreck, smashed regulator, tea kettle, sea urchins, two days. So we tried to go deeper. And there's this hyperlink on yeah. Proudfoot. And this is like the, 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 the opening of the rabbit hole is right here is that hyperlink. Searching for Proudfoot online was like walking into a hall of mirrors. His story pops up all over the place. A consistent story with no apparent source. Sometimes the details would change a little bit, but not much. We called and emailed every Michael Proudfoot we could find. At one point, I even got in touch with a former Olympic pentathlete and swimming coach in England, thinking that if anyone was comfortable enough in the water to survive two days, it would be him but it wasn't. We reached out to scuba shops, scoured newspaper archives, poured over forums, and kept following rabbit holes. But no rabbit. Until we started to notice a pattern. Every so often, instead of pointing to one of the dateless blog posts, one of the hyperlinks pointed back to a scuba diving forum. It was an old one. It seemed to predate most of the blogs. 
And deep in the threads of that forum, there's a link back to a children's book. It's one of those elementary school textbooks with cartoony graphics, and it's called Disasters, a cross-curricular theme. And here's where I got excited, because it had an Australian publisher. So maybe Proudfoot was Australian, and he had an accident on vacation that didn't make the news in Mexico, but was so incredible that they covered it in the local paper back home. Then maybe that story had made its way to the children's book author. Either way, it looked like an Australian writer had talked to him, and at the very least, we could talk to that writer. Or rather, because the time difference in Australia makes it really hard to get people on the phone during business hours, we could ask somebody else to do it for us. Oh, hi, Debbie. This is Carrie. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you? We reached out to Carrie Shear, a freelancer in Adelaide, Australia, and asked her to dig around a bit. She contacted RIC Publishing and talked to Debbie Hendricks, the research coordinator. Is there any way to actually get in touch with the author? Because even if he could remember, like, oh, yep, I read it in a newspaper or something like that, you know, um, that might just help us. How we how we write our books is that we have um, a number of writers uh-huh. and they produce a book and then there could be several different writers on the same project. So there would have been a sound story. But no is the short answer. They didn't know who wrote it. So there's no telling who actually wrote that particular piece. In fact, they don't even know when it was written. Uh, If you could tell me, I keep trying to find the date of the the release of that book. And I just, I can't find it. It, it, Like when I'm looking at the book, it doesn't actually show that page where it would tell the date. No, I know. I know. And that is very unusual. We all looked at that and went, why doesn't it have a year of publication, which is what we always put on our book. So for some reason, I don't know why it doesn't have the the year of publication. And as I said... uh, That's right. We can trace all the internet references of Michael Proudfoot to a single entry in an Australian children's book that, according to the people who published it, has no known author or date of publication. So do do you get the sense that they are as mystified as you are yeah i do they are really confused as well and we pressed them for a while and then moved on eventually carrie found damien a professional salvage diver and dry suit repairman in australia in whom clients place a lot of trust so yes i got your number from some divers who go to you to repair their dry suits Um, yeah correct They're, they're the commercial divers that work in poo pits Oh, they work in poop pits. They didn't tell me that. <laughs> Damien is the guy that professional poop divers trust to keep a dry suit between them and their profession. They do a lot of work in um, sewage plants, immersed in um, in uh, sewage systems. Wow. So I guess that's really harsh on their dry suits then. <laughs> it's harsh on everything. <laughs> Damien is sort of known for collecting dive stories. And he also knows firsthand just how scary and dangerous shipwrecks can be. I mean, I got lost in a wreck, a wreck called the Prince of Wales. And um, nearly ran out of gas and um, had to feel my way out. And we're in zero visibility, trapped in a World War II wreck full of, uh, there's like 500 skeletons. And got out with you know, virtually no gas left just by luck. That's so scary. 
yeah, a guy had a ringing bell and he found the hatch out and we're in zero visibility. So just feeling your way around, trapped in a World War II wreck. Wow. <laughs> my life flashed before my eyes for about half an hour. So if this story had worked its way back That's around to anyone, it would have been him. Did you see anything about, have you heard about Michael Proudfoot? Um, or have you ever heard of this case? Um, no. I tend to know most of the stories in and around, and I've not particularly heard of that one. But he does have a theory about where the story um, came from. Most divers are full of shit. Though he may be biased, <laughs> given his profession. They love talking about themselves and making up stories. Do you remember the moment that it went from being like, we're actually going to find this guy, to, I wonder if this is even possible? Yeah, totally. For me, it was when I started cold calling Proud Feet. <laughs> Despite the fact that this story had to be true, because we'd read it on the internet, after Damien pointed out that divers are full of shit, we wondered if it was time for us to call bullshit on this whole story. And honestly, once we stood back from this one a little bit, it did kind of sound like the plot of a rejected Baywatch script. So we decided to change tactics. We went from searching for Michael Proudfoot to seeing if we could disprove his entire story. Based on the scraps of real info we could find, it seemed like there were four factors to investigate. Things that either should have killed him or that helped him survive. The air pocket he managed to find. The hypothermia I should have gotten underwater the sea urchins he supposedly ate, and the fresh water he supposedly found in a tea kettle. Disprove any one of those factors and the whole story would collapse. We could toss it back. Which brings us back to Richie Kohler, who we heard from at the beginning of the show. Ten minutes, okay, thank you. And it turns out that this was right up his alley. Because in addition to years of wreck diving and exploring both the Titanic and its sister ship the Britannic, Kohler was host of the History Channel show, Deep Sea Detectives. He had years of experience as a professional diving sleuth. And one of the first things he pointed out was that in a shipwreck, air pockets don't last very long. Even the simple um, process of a shipwreck rusting consumes the oxygen within an environment, making it anaerobic or non-oxygen. So although you're looking around and you call it an air pocket, it's really a nitrogen pocket or a carbon dioxide and nitrogen pocket. There's not enough oxygen to, to live. Even a tiny little spot of rust will eventually react with the oxygen in the bubble. But the process can be very slow or very fast. There's no hard and fast rate of consumption here. Factors such as the coats of paint on the ship and the type of damage it sustained affect how long oxygen will last. The point is, Eventually, the oxygen will either leach out of the pocket or degrade to the point that you can't breathe it. Another rule taught to every scuba diver is never take your regulator out in an airspace inside a shipwreck or cave. The reason is simple. If you did that and that shipwreck had diesel fuel in it or gasoline or propane, you have no idea what the gas, you think it's air, but you have no idea, and now you're about to breathe it in. And there are many divers that have died doing exactly that, taking their regulator out, thinking, wow, this is cool, but then taking a breath of something that was poisonous and, and or had absolutely no oxygen. 
so Proudfoot would have needed to have been exploring a wreck sunk recently enough that it still contained oxygen, but not already contaminated by some sort of noxious gas or poison. So that makes the situation extremely unlikely. But we already knew that. His next problem, however, is that he's brought his own poison with him. What he's going to wind up doing is eventually replacing the oxygen with carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is a killer. When you take a deep breath and hold it, your eventual urge to breathe doesn't come from the fact that you're running out of oxygen, but that you have too much carbon dioxide building up in your system, like garbage piling up in the trash can. You've got to take it out. If you don't exhale, CO2 starts to clog your blood. It can't take in oxygen because there's no space for it. You'll start to asphyxiate because your blood chemistry is off. Your lungs will burn. Then your diaphragm will begin to spasm uncontrollably. Trapped in a small underwater bubble, Proudfoot would have been slowly losing the ability to exhale his CO2. Every breath he took would have had just a little bit more. He'd have had to breathe faster to get rid of it, which would increase the CO2 levels in the bubble. It's a positive feedback loop. When his air pocket hit 4% CO2, he'd begin to hyperventilate. And what happens is he'll start first get a headache, and then eventually he'll pass out because the FO2 or the fraction of oxygen in that room will fall to such a low point it won't sustain life. Even with hours of oxygen still left in his bubble, he'd suffocate. Peter and Robbie's myth-busting detective efforts continue after a quick break. Okay, just to recap here, Robbie Carver and Peter Frick Wright of The Outside Podcast are investigating a story that they read on the internet about a diver who survived in an air pocket on a shipwreck. But because they couldn't find the perhaps apocryphal diver in question, they're now just trying to figure out if this is possible. Period. This led them to realize that, oh, wait, if you're going to survive for two days, you need a pretty big air pocket. Here's Peter. So we did some math, and it turns out that in order to survive 48 hours in a shipwreck, he would need an air bubble roughly 6 feet by 8 feet by 9 feet, or about the size of a small bedroom. And there's no way an airtight pocket that large is hanging out in an upside-down ship, unless the ship is down at depth, in which case something called Boyle's Law comes into play. A little bit of science here, but every 33 feet, the atmospheric pressure or the weight of the water on you doubles. So right here at sea level, the weight of the air is 14.7 pounds on every square inch of your body, okay? If you go to 30 feet, it's double that. It's 28 feet. And every 33 feet beyond that, it doubles again. So the deeper you go, the more water pushes the same amount of air into a smaller and smaller space. Imagine I take a glass and I hold it upside down. At the surface, it's filled with air. When I bring it down to 33 feet, it would be half filled with water. It's not that the water came into the glass, it's that the air collapsed or was pressurized. It shrank, if you will. What this means is that the size of the compartment Proudfoot would have needed is relative to the depth of the shipwreck. The deeper the wreck, the smaller space that would support him for two days. The smaller the space, the more likely it would be to hold air. So if we give Proudfoot the benefit of the doubt and say he was a sport diver exploring at the limits of his depth, roughly 100 feet deep, we can put him in a space 3 feet by 3 feet by 6 feet, which is just a little smaller than your typical bathroom stall. So, okay, a bit more plausible. 
maybe it was worth trying to track down the boat itself. The hard thing about researching shipwrecks in Baja is that there's a surf break in Baja called shipwrecks. So most everything redirects to that. There's also a whole bunch of boats that have been sunk on purpose. Shipwreck diving parks. But none old enough for Proudfoot to have been in. There's also a shipwreck called the Baja California, but it sunk off the coast of Florida. So it was no help. We were still looking for a needle in a very wet haystack. But then this guy in a diving forum pointed out a way that we might be able to make the haystack smaller. This guy throws out this extra little detail. The wreck would have to weigh more than 92,448 pounds to stay down with that pocket in it. Does that make sense? So so they've, they've crunched the numbers to say that the air pocket has to be has to contain this much air for a man to plausibly survive for two days, right? Well, that much air has a certain amount of buoyancy. The reason this is a big deal for us is that records of very large shipwrecks, your oil tankers and World War II vessels and what have you, are fairly easy to find. So if the ship needed to be really big to hold down a Proudfoot-sized pocket of air, we might be able to prove that there was no shipwrecks of that size sunk recently enough to contain good air off the coast of Baja at that time. It would basically debunk the whole story. So I got all excited about this because I was like, like 90,000 pounds, like that's really, really heavy. Unfortunately, when Robbie showed me a picture of a 90,000 pound boat, all we learned is that boats are heavier than you'd think. So when you found this, you were like, oh yes, this is gonna, this is gonna show me exactly what type of boat this is. And now we're like, well, it's a boat. So to recap, we can't disprove the fact that he found an air pocket. And the size of the ship he would have been on is exactly the size that might disappear in Mexico without being reported. All we'd learned is that we were crap Mythbusters. So we got a little more creative. All right, uh, <clears throat> Pete, you, uh, you want to tell me what you're wearing? So, um, yes, I'm wearing a uh, 4-3 surfing wetsuit. Okay. Um, so after finding an air pocket, Proudfoot's next problem would have been hypothermia. Water saps heat 25 times more quickly than air. So unless Proudfoot's air pocket was big enough that he was able to get all the way out of the water, he'd have trouble maintaining his core temperature. The peak water temperature off the coast of Baja, California is 67 degrees. So Proudfoot would have had to survive that for 48 hours. So we decided to run an experiment. We cooled a hot tub down to 67 degrees, stuffed Pete into a wetsuit, and plopped him in. Really? Does it feel downright tropical? I, I, this is what I would think the water in Baja, California would be like. Is like just slightly cold to the touch, but in, like totally pleasant. Then we took his temperature. It's under your tongue, right? It, it won't work if it's over your tongue. It's under your tongue. I'm just checking, man. You know, you, you only eat spaghetti, so you might not know some of these things. <laughs> From there, sure. we monitored the rate at which Pete's core temperature decreased to see if he could reasonably stay alive for 48 hours without succumbing to hypothermia. I was told to pull him out if he reached 93 degrees. Why, why did we settle on 93 degrees exactly? Because <laughs> my mom made us. <laughs> she made us have a safety plan in place. I just want to make sure that you're, like, not going to let him go too far into this. Like, you don't, you should have, like, a cutoff temperature, shouldn't you? I'm a math right. teacher. Humor okay, me. okay. I, Let's well. say 93. How about that? Anyway, back to the hot tub. 
The reality is that even tropical waters can still bring you to the brink of death. Even if the water feels warm, you're rapidly losing heat. You just don't realize it. It's called warm water hypothermia. Like the, the frog in the pot. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you're, the, you're the frog in the pot. <laughs> Being cooled very slowly, so slowly that I never get out of the water. And what we found was that this frog, at least, was consistently losing his heat at a rate of 0.2 degrees every 15 minutes. We kept Pete in the cold tub for two hours just to make sure. You are shaking uncontrollably. <laughs> Only because I wasn't thinking about it. It's like I don't, I don't need to shake. See, I can, I can stop anytime can, I want. <laughs> Why don't you take your temperature right now, and then we'll probably just get you out. Now you're shivering. <laughs> you can barely keep that thing in. Mm-hmm. Ninety-four point nine. I don't know. I've lost track. Oh, that's colder. Yeah, that's definitely colder. You were in the ninety-fives before. We've seen a really consistent point two degrees every fifteen minutes. Point eight an hour. I was a little bit below ninety-seven. Now I'm a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm right. No, it was exactly two degrees. Um. So yeah, like basically consistent. What's the yeah? What's the lowest temperature that, that you can get to? before you're just, you die from hypothermia. Oh, it was in our frozen episode. That, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> Do you remember what it was? No, that's what I'm trying to ask you. <laughs> Here's where we play a clip of tape of Crystal saying that line from the frozen episode. The lowest recorded core temperature in a surviving adult is 60.8 degrees. Okay, n- 38 degrees. Okay, 38 degrees exactly that he can lose. Yeah. Okay. If he's losing it at the rate that you are currently losing it at, which is 0.8 degrees per hour, Uh how many hours is that? Divided by 0.8? It's 47 and a half hours. (laughs) So he would have died a half hour before getting rescued if he was there for exactly two days. If he's there for exactly two days, if he was underwater, like if he was completely underwater up to his neck, if the air... Damn it. (laughs) It wouldn't have been fun. But according to our bulletproof scientific experiment, if Proudfoot had been able to get part of his body out of the water, or if he'd had a dry suit, or even a thicker wetsuit, it was conceivable that he could have lasted two days underwater. Right, it's it's just barely plausible enough. Oh my god. You would have survived. (laughs) Barely. (laughs) I made it. After Pete rolled around in the sunshine for a while, it's so much warmer out here. we moved on to improbable factor number three. <laughs> this is so awesome. The sea urchins. He ate sea urchins for two days to survive. It's like the last sentence in every one of these internet paragraphs. That was kind of my, my next thought was, okay, if there's this detail he's eating sea urchins, then the ship had to have been down there too long, like, like that the, the air would have become toxic or just leached out, you know, all that kind of stuff that we've learned about. For our purposes, sea urchins are a way to measure time. It's kind of like on CSI, they look at the kinds of insects that are in the dead body and they can tell how long it's been dead. And since we know Proudfoot needed a relatively recent shipwreck to find breathable air, we thought if sea urchins could establish a timeline, they could disprove the whole story. They could solve this thing. But no. Quite literally one of the very first organisms to occupy a sunken ship 
are sea urchins. <laughs> if he's going to eat anything in a ship that has been so recently sunk that it still has oxygen that's breathable, it's going to be sea urchins. Yeah. Wow. Who'd have, who'd have thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. There's only one chance left to disprove Proudfoot's story. The tea kettle. Or was it a pot? Or, according to some sources, a tea urn. Whatever that is. Here it's a pot, not a kettle. But is that the pot calling the kettle? or <laughs> the, pot, the pot calling the kettle non-existent? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's still an open container, right? Which becomes problematic in our search. When we talked to Richie Kohler, he came down hardest on this point. No ship is going to sink in such a way that a tea kettle stays upright and still contains drinkable water. When most ships sink, 90% of them always land on their side. Generally, water will come in from one side or the other and cause the ship to list or lean over to that side. According to Kohler, there are really only two types of ships that land upright. The first are ships like the Titanic that sink in water so deep that the hydrodynamics of their shape actually return them to the normal position as they sink. The other kind are those that are intentionally sunk for recreational divers to explore. They don't want any air pockets in the ship. They, they cut many holes uh, so that no air pockets would affect the buoyancy of the ship as it's sinking. They want it to sink, not necessarily rapidly, but evenly. It's it's implausible then that he would find a an undisturbed tea kettle full of fresh water if if ninety percent of of natural shipwrecks I guess for lack of a better term fall on their sides. That's absolutely correct. Case closed. Finally, the science of survival is produced by me, Peter Fickrett, with Robbie Carver. Thanks to Carrie Shear. So, I just wanted to run something by you. Okay. So, on... One of the details that Pete and I dismissed pretty quickly was that some of these blogs called the tea kettle an urn. We just thought it was a weird colloquialism and didn't think too much about it. But a few days later, I actually looked up what an urn was. It's that, it's that big metal, uh, fully enclosed carafe with a little lever with the the liquid pours out of like a Gatorade cooler but for tea yeah and we kind of like grabbed on to this idea that fresh water in a tea kettle could never survive getting sunk underwater as like okay well this is the one thing that we can say okay this story must not be true because <laughs> of the tea kettle <laughs> the smoking gun of the tea kettle the steaming kettle <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's an urn. I went back and checked. In the children's book, as best as we can tell, the original source for this called it an urn. The tea kettle, pot, and all these other names are the product of a game of journalistic telephone. Yeah. So it wouldn't matter if the, if the ship were upside down or what. So it turns out this part of the story was watertight. But Kohler still had some questions about the psychology of the situation. Why, if he had the ability to be breathing in an air bell, why wouldn't he have tried to get to the surface? Meaning, take a deep breath, hold it in your lungs, come out of the shipwreck, and then start to swim to the surface. 
Remember Boyle's Law? Kohler says that if the moment Proudfoot had reached the ship's bubble, he took a large gulp of air, he would have had twice the oxygen in his lungs than the same amount of air on the surface. So as long as you exhale as your lungs expand, you could literally get to the surface on a single breath. And Kohler says most people doing a wreck dive would have known that. But spend too much time at depth, and you risk what divers call the bends, which are basically death bubbles. Dissolved gas building up in your body's tissue due to pressure. The longer you're down there, the worse it gets. The best way to describe it is imagine when you're looking at a bottle of Coke. When it's sealed, you don't see any bubbles. But the minute you open it, you hear the hiss of the expanding gas, the pressure being released. And these bubbles form in the liquid. Well, that's the same thing that would happen to his blood. Bubbles would form in this diver's blood. The bends are a depth plus time equation and it comes into play anytime you descend beyond 30 feet. Go to 300 feet and immediately resurface and you're fine. But spend 10 minutes there and you'll need to spend a full hour returning to the surface. That means if you're Proudfoot, you have moments to decide whether or not to self-rescue because soon the pain of ascent would be too much. Needless to say, bubbles in your lungs, your heart, your brain are a bad thing and usually result in instantaneous death. Bubbles in your spinal cord result in paralysis. Bubbles just caught in a joint are painful. And that's where the Benz gets its name from, is that most Benz cases are minor and occur in a nerve in a joint, causing people to writhe in agony and bend their extremities to these odd angles to try and alleviate the pain. So the big threat is hesitation. If you wait, you put yourself in serious trouble. Yeah. There's a point of no return to this that he would probably know. And then and then it's like, all right, if I go up, there's a good chance I'll be paralyzed. There's a good chance I'll die on the surface. Right. I have no choice but to wait for rescue. Or, you know, the, the, the life that I lead will not be recognizable to me. And so maybe I'll just stay here. Right. And then and then you you do legitimately reach the point where you are choosing your method of death. What would you choose? Oh God. Um You know, if I'm being honest, I would probably stay there and hope I was rescued. Because I think as if we're talking about having reached that point, the hope of being rescued is probably a stronger hope than the hope of surviving the math of decompression, if you know it that well. Does that make sense? Like... But if I knew that nobody knew where I was, then I, I would hope that I would take the risk and swim. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a commercial diver or even a semi-experienced recreational diver being down there without anybody knowing. I mean, that's the first rule of anything right. is tell somebody where you're going, go with somebody. I mean, so if we assume that, then we assume that, that you get stuck, you have hope of rescue. And so you just stay put. And so this story becomes, to me, one click more plausible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we want to just officially, like, myth-bust this story and, and put a stamp on it that says, nope, fake, yeah. like... Yeah. Here, look at what we did. We solved this thing. Right, exactly. Here, here's all of the scientific reasons that this story is bunk, and we can't do that. We, we cannot disprove it on scientific grounds. Yeah. 
but we can't prove it on journalistic grounds. Right. So that makes us magical realists. <laughs> By this point, I think it's safe to say that we've unraveled this thing to the best of our abilities. As improbable as Proudfoot's story might be, it actually might hold water or air. We can't sufficiently disprove it. And that's really annoying. Where do you think this story came from, if you had to guess? You know, there was probably some truth to a story where someone was trapped in a shipwreck and they got out. And and that could have been the guy went in the shipwreck, all of a sudden he had a problem, he started running out of air, but then he got out. And that happens. You know, that, that, that happens. People make mistakes, but there by the grace of God, they get out. And it's possible that this story was told, then told again, and then it was, he didn't get out. And then, you know, how things have uh, the ability to grow a life of their own. In other words, the story just kept gathering details. Like a shipwreck in the shallows gathers fish and plants. At a certain point, it's gathered so much new life, it barely resembles the original. You can hardly tell what the ship looked like. There's no way to know where it came from. Peter and Robbie haven't yet closed the case on this story. They're still looking for leads. So if you've got any idea of where the story of Michael Proudfoot came from, shoot them an email at podcast at outsidemag.com with Proudfoot in the subject line. I can confirm that they are fun and unintimidating to talk to. The Outside Podcast and its Science of Survival series are produced by Peter Frick Wright and Robbie Carver. The show is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX, and it's supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. They are at sloan.org. Outside In is produced by me, Sam Evans Brown, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, Hannah McCarthy, and Ben Henry. Maureen McMurray is the epoxy that holds this whole rickety ship together. You might have noticed the loss of Logan Shannon and Molly Donahue from our credits this week. Both of them have moved on to greener pastures. To say that I'm going to miss them immensely would be to engage in the crassest sort of understatement. They're irreplaceable, and their new co-workers are lucky to have them. You can find us online at OutsideInRadio.org. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OutsideInRadio. We had music today from Blue Dot Sessions, and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. <laughs>